Hello and welcome to On Landscape. I'm here with David Ward and Joe Cornish and it's a uh, lovely sunny afternoon here in Scotland. What's it like down your way? The sun always shines in Yorkshire, Tim. You should know that. <laughs> God's own country, indeed. Yeah. We're in the rain and um, shadow of the huge Pennine range. Well, normally in Scotland it would be uh, pouring it down and the midges starting to appear, but because we're in lockdown, it's absolutely glorious and has been for quite some time now. <laughs> um, so hence why I'm indoors chatting away. Uh, we, we finished off the questions last time, which is quite good going. People enjoyed uh, getting through those, I think. Um, and this time uh, we've decided to, or I've decided to suggest a topic uh, which might challenge us for a, a few minutes, which is... Can you teach or learn composition, uh, and how is it possible? It's something that I've I've looked at myself in trying to teach myself, but I think you and both of you have experience trying to teach it and having seen the results. So uh, I'd be interested in your perspectives on this, and who'd like to um, <laughs> go on? Go on, David. Go on, David. Um, so it's a it's a I certainly don't believe in teaching it by rules. I think most people are probably aware of my uh, my feeling about the rules. Um, something like the rule of thirds, the, the acronym for rule of thirds is always very good, I think. Um, very apt. The, pro the problem is that um, composition requires us to think... Uh, in a, in a way that is expansive. It, it requires us to, to think of possible solutions. I mentioned in, I think, in the last podcast about how uh, composition was really about puzzle solving. Uh, and we to do composition well, you need to think of um, lots of different possible solutions to the problem of composition that you're presented with. Um, you're given a series of forms, you're given the light, you're given whatever the cloud's doing uh, in a landscape situation. And somehow you need to make those fit within the frame uh, that you present to it. Um, and uh, as John Sarkovsky famously said, um, uh, the essence of photography is quoting out of context. So you're taking a portion of reality, you're placing a frame around it, and somehow you're trying to make that look as a, as a finished image, as something that is satisfying in itself. I suppose most of the time, although not always, it can allude to other things. Um, so that's a very difficult process to teach. And I think that's predominantly why the best teaching of it is a long term project. It's self teaching or or, or a, attending a, um, a course or a series of courses. Um, I don't think any shorter way of doing it is particularly effective. Um, the, but that is also why most articles or books about that touch on the subject of composition take the shortcut route, which is to say these are the rules or the uh, suggestions for how it should be best done. Um, and those rules fall into two uh, main groups. Um, the first are basically sh uh, a sort of a shorthand version of how um, human perception works for depth. Um, you know, like uh, you have a, yeah. um, a diagonal line and that's that's supposed to give you a sense of depth. That's because there's a uh, an unspoken little routine that our brains use where we imagine there will always be diminution of scale along the line. So if you have a line going through a, an image, you think that the 
the far end of it is further away than the near end. Um, although Steven Pinker noted in uh, How the Mind Works, uh, was he say he said vision is a, a, a badly posed question because it's mathematically there's no reason why that's the case at all. Um, you could take yeah. any bunch of shapes and make them fit and look, which is how um, you know, like there is uh, perspective, which is how obviously perspective drawing and painting works and also um, how optical illusions work. Uh, so there's a set of these rules which are about that. They're about human perception. And then there's a set of rules which are, are just um, really fashion, I suppose. They're, they're, um, if you think of rule of thirds, uh, Reverend Smith, I think he was called, the guy who came up with rule of thirds, who, who stated yeah. very emphatically that, um, that that proportion was better than any other that he'd come across. Um, but Just that was, before the golden section or? Um, way after the golden section, wasn't it? Seven, 17th century, wasn't it, I think? Um, so golden section uh, dates back to uh, to ancient Greece, I think, Phi and all of that, um, but was not really employed in painting, as far as I know, and I, I might be wrong on this, uh, as, a, as a rule in painting until uh, the Renaissance. Joe, you, you did yeah, painting, so. so is that is that right? Well, I'm not sure if it was even a rule then, uh, actually. But I, I, I mean, I, I think it was. Uh, it, it's really hard to say. I've certainly reading about Raphael, Leonardo, and uh, Michelangelo, for example. If you think of that, they were like the big three. Um, and there's no mention uh, from my reading of of a golden section in that. So it, I'm sure it's something that was, you know, kind of around in thinking, but I don't think it dominated what, what they did necessarily. I think it was almost commentary, wasn't it, from some some people uh, parallel to the art world trying to recognise. Philosophers and, and critics, possibly. Yeah. yeah, well, I think there was, a, there, was a, there was a search throughout the Renaissance for kind of underlying uh, intellectual scaffold for reality, wasn't yeah. there? So... Um, so golden section was part was part of that I think, but there were other. Oh, if you think of um, Leonardo Vitruvius, uh, Vitruvian man, um, yeah, yeah um, you know that that set of proportions that's that's in that that's you know you could say on one hand it's just a shortcut for how you draw a figure, but it's also a kind of philosophical scaffold as well, isn't it? Um, it's an attempt. It, it, that's true. It's an attempt to sort of work out uh, mathematical uh, absolutes. Uh, for human, uh, for the human body. Um, and I mean, it's just a, it's a kind of beautiful drawing, but it isn't really, uh, it, as, as far as I can see, it doesn't necessarily prove anything really, because people are different shapes, as we know, and, and different proportions. And that's, but it does, it, 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 what I think is interesting about it is the kind of philosophical search for, uh, for order, um, and for a universal truth underlying, um, you know, human life. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm, I did do some research on this a while ago. I'm not quite sure, but I think the the book that it appeared in was actually about uh, golden section and other um, uh, philosophical concepts about proportion. Um, and I can't remember the author now, but I will perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll let Tim know, and he can put it in the notes. All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you can split those rules into 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 two kind of camps. Um, and so the the first set of rules, which is about um, uh, 
shortcuts for, for describing human perception are very useful because they do give you strong hints as to how we understand the space. And since you're taking a multi-dimensional space for for uh, three dimensions of time, uh, sorry, three dimensions plus time, plus all of the other part of the puzzle, which is to do with colour and luminosity and all of that kind of stuff, and you're trying to compress this onto onto a flat plane and make it be red in the terms of landscape, mostly red in a way that makes a good depiction of depth, um, then they they're useful, they're helpful, but they're they are only they are only guidelines. They are only the um, uh, the stabilizers on your tricycle. You know that's all they're there for, yeah. really. Um, uh, and the other ones, the fashion ones, um, other proportions are always available. I mean, there's there's a reason why golden section was, is is popular because um, it actually links quite uh, deeply with proportions in in nature phi is a yeah. an irrational number that crops up all the time in nature it's seen in the fibonacci sequence uh which is in turn you can read into the way that the seeds are arranged in a sunflower head and all sorts of um things like that you know it's a it's a it feels right i think is the yeah. basic thing and so i think that We've recently found out it's um, a ratio that defines a lot of subatomic particles as well. Yeah, I was reading that as well. Is it a new scientist, was it? I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was. It, yeah, so it might be like a really basic thing, like the Planck constant or something like that. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's, maybe that's the reason why these numbers are irrational. If you think of pi and phi, they're 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 all pretty weird. They're they're sort of are completely yeah. arbitrary, aren't they? Um, they uh, tend not to make a great great photograph when used on their own, though, do they? <laughs> No, and that's that's the that's the point, isn't it? If you if you picked, uh, I don't know, an arbitrary set of the 100 best photographs ever taken, if you could do such a thing, I, you might be able to shoehorn some of them into fitting within these rules. Um, but but you know the fact that the rules themselves are so uh, in in imprecisely worded helps with that doesn't it yeah. you know uh what they so where you've got the grid lines where they meet as the points of power but you have to say it in a voice like that every every time you know points of power um and uh and you want you want significant things to sit somewhere on or near the point well on yeah. or near I, how near i do like I do like the uh, playing the game of finding out how how much tolerance photographers allow for these powerpoints when they're giving demonstrations. Yeah. Put a great big circle on each powerpoint and say it nearly fits in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you can you can take you can take pretty much any photograph and you can make it conform in some way to one of those. Yeah. Um, one Works of those with rules. the rule of fifths or the rule of fourths. Yes. They all work. Yeah. <laughs> Eighths, sixteenths, twenty <laughs> thirds. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I th I think. Teaching composition, learning about composition is is probably a lifetime's uh, work. But I think as a tutor, it's our job to try and uh, steer people in the right direction for, for the kind of images that they want to make, not to be mm. too prescriptive. Well, if I ask Joe, how, how would you go about starting to teach somebody? If somebody comes to you for a one-to-one -one and they're asking about composition, what, what sort of tool set do you have available to oh dear. help them learn? Well, it's a, you know, it is a, it's a very good question. I, it's a very interesting question. And I, I suppose if I felt that I, I 
got the hang of it. I might have been able to make a living out of it before, but um, I, I think that for me, I mean, I, I did four years at university studying fine art, and, and we never we never looked at rules of composition at all during that entire time from memory. Um, everything was based on personal experience and using the medium, practicing different medium media. Uh, and, and so it was, it was a bit of a shock when I became a photographer and then, you know, went into education at least 15 years after I'd been a working photographer and found that, that people were striving, almost striving to make pictures fit rules, um, which made no sense to me at all. And, and it still doesn't. Although, uh, you know, as David says, I think that, uh, the guidance to understanding human perception, perception is really really useful because it gives you at least a sense of what might make more successful compositions and you know i think there is a lot of uh of evolutionary biology that can point to what is pleasing for us but you know in, in a sense uh like like many other art forms look at at the world or describe the world with sound or whatever um in ways that uh are a different to direct experience and and in our medium uh it, it's perhaps the the nature of the medium itself and especially as landscape photographers the sheer complexity of what we're looking at that doesn't really lend itself to prescriptive solutions and it probably wouldn't make good art if it did um i mean architecture is the is perhaps the one thing that you can you can start to understand um, most easily, perhaps in terms of mathematics and proportion. But, but I think uh, for me, how do I try to teach it? I try to, I try to teach it in terms of, of four or five abstractions. I mean, depth, David mentioned, you know, that is, that's very important, understanding how to describe depth at least and, and to feel it. You see that in, in painting as well. Uh, diagonal lines are uh, an example and then sometimes you know, we, we hear the old sort of leading lines thing that all that is, is exactly as you were saying, um, is a way of of enhancing or um, emphasizing the illusion of spatial depth in the picture space. Um, another uh, thing that, uh, you know, you use the word proportion. I think proportion is absolutely fundamental to composition. In a sense, it's a word that describes composition, uh, the idea that the proportion to me is is the idea of relationships, uh, the relationships throughout the the picture space. Again, um, the other elements that I I think are worth mentioning and very important are energy and flow. And what they sound woolly and abstract, but as soon as you start looking at a landscape picture, which will typically, I mean, David, your pictures are often wonderfully sort of reduced in in because you you were able to look at at, at uh, you know the way that you look at the world is really unique but i tend to sort of perhaps in a more conventional way look at landscapes and, and spaces with a lot of complexity and then especially woodland for example you can't make those spaces kind of conform to rules they just absolutely it, it, you know they, it, they're just it's just not gonna happen so what what you do instead is to look at the relationships within them. So trees and branches um, and shrubs and leaves and uh, understory and rivers and stones have a certain presence and a certain, uh, sometimes they have lines and shapes 
an emphasis. Sometimes they're bright, sometimes they're dark. They might be a, a warm, earthy colour, they might be a cool colour. All of those things set up a kind of conversation of relationships within the frame. And ultimately, I think our job is to find uh, a way of, of seeing. Um, and it, sometimes a little bit of post-production is required as well to, to kind of refine. But first of all, it's where you put the, put the camera um, and, and trying to analyse, literally analyse all of the elements within the frame so that they all make some contribution. So they all form part of a coherent energy, if you will. Uh, for me, that's the... That, that, that's the only way I can I can think about it because to me trying to make a picture conform to rules is putting the cart before the horse absolutely agree with that and, and it's also you know with photography I think we're, we're very aware probably with landscape photography especially I think because it re relates to the uh, the complexity that you were talking about um, that it's what you exclude is as important as what you include um, and and so it's 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 working out where that line of decision is where the edge of your frame is 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 the issue isn't it and uh, um and i think that you know I've, I've gone down a route which is about getting into a small space because i found it much easier to work out where i want the edge of my frame to be in a, that small space than i do in a in a larger landscape i think um and, and woodland is possibly the most difficult subject i think in in a in a large landscape to to work with because it's very difficult to handle that complexity and and to have a feeling for how you make it feel as a as a satisfied whole i think it was sarkovsky again he said that the edge of the frame uh the edge the, the frame of the photograph should be as the cushion is to the billiard table i think was what he said <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah which goes back to that the idea of energy and flow Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that, and that's a brilliant analogy. I, I think, you know, Tchaikovsky really did write about photography as well as anybody who has ever lived. And that, that's a that's a brilliant one. And Tim, uh, you know, what's your view? I mean, you know, as somebody who's both taught and learned photography from others. I mean, do you think that there's a, a way of describing it or teaching it? Well, I think from from my point of view, I came to. I, I, I did do some photography when I was younger, but my first experience with visual, um, the, the, the present things on paper, let's say just visuals, is graphic design. So when I was working for GEC, I was, I was picked out as the person least likely to cock up designing the brochure for our uh, company <laughs> when we were there. Yeah. And so we, we were doing paste up. So we, I, I was given a bunch of photographs um, and a little printer to play with um, said cut these up put them all on a page and so I had to teach myself typography and, and balance and white space so I got I got all the classic books out for graphic design which I think are probably a lot better as a source for information about composition than um, most photography books because typography is all about white space and flow and balance and uh, alignment and things and you, you introduce visual objects into that such as uh, pictures or uh, visual elements such as curves uh, and you're playing with the fundamentals of, of uh, graphics and it's only when I came to start uh, photography that I used some of that knowledge to work out how photographs work and I, I took I took your first light book Joe and 
got a piece of tracing paper and and did probably what you might have done if you're talking about energy and flow is is drew the lines on which were the basic shape of what was in front of me the edges of things um and then drew in another color i put on where my eye went when i looked at the picture which which flew which way did it go around the picture um and i discovered some you know there, there were some similarities in in constructions and, and and these come from basically those ideas of flow closing the energy in a system um for instance so that's the idea that don't have things that leak out the side of pictures which is like the pinball table uh cushion um and and that that was a big big learning point for me but it it and since then i have seen a lot of photographers that i've talked to and some of the photographers i've admired have been from a graphic design background graham for cook instance. for instance yeah graham cook paul mitchell dav thomas um, yeah and there's there's lots michael of kenner. Sergeants. michael kenner gra graphics and yeah so i think that's a good source if you can if you can lay out some text on a page uh and some pictures then you should have a, a better idea of of balance and i think that's also why working in in a small area working on details like you do david is 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 a better way of learning because you can move around with a lot more flexibility change the relationships of things change the balance of things um and get that very quick feedback going um, yeah, I mean, if you if you think about Weston, for instance, Edward Weston, he he started off uh, famous famously with the Nautilus shells and the and the peppers, very small scenes, um, and only later was he known for yeah. making larger landscapes. I mean, he's probably not as well known as a landscape photographer as as Ansel, obviously, but he did do bigger compositions. If you think about Point Lobos and and those kind of images, and also he got a Guggenheim fellowship i think to go around the the western states and some of those were very big expansive landscapes but he worked out how to organize composition from those small scenes first um and i think that was a a really good key learning um exercise for him and it's and in a way that's that's what i've done um you know only i've not really moved on i've just stayed with the small stuff um and uh but we also i think we we always think about composition or is it or or it's normally discussed in terms of um line and form uh, but there are many other elements to the composition that have to be considered you know the color aspects of the composition balancing color or maybe using contrasting colors that's all key to the to the composition as is the luminance of the scene in different parts um cuz your eye tracks around the scene according to um the sort of built-in routines that we have uh in fact we uh we look in the shadows first and we look in the highlights last which is why it doesn't work very well if you've got very bright patches near the edge of the scene and why a vignette sort of works um so th those are those are things that definitely need to be considered I, I totally agree, and I think that the reason that they're not talked about is because they're so so complicated to describe well, and and so people are well, are we all a bit lazy maybe uh, about it? But uh, we have different opinions about it. But I I, I think that's true. I mean, if it, with black and white, it's a little bit easier because at least then when you describe a tone, you can literally measure every tone against one another uh, in terms of luminance. Whereas in color, there's such a uh, a kind of um, 
it's a whole it's a whole raft of uh, of emotional connections with every single color and and especially with the color relationships in a particular picture uh, and of associations and references which will differ uh, for every individual according to their background and then that's complicated further by the fact that every everybody sees color a little bit differently so we don't exactly yeah. know what anyone else is seeing um and and i i know that is frust that is frustrating and it makes it it makes it an especially complex uh subject to to describe and and i think it's partly why we, we still have a great affection for black and white photography and critics are very keen on black and white photography you know they 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 really on the whole critics seem to be really struggle with color photography um and it's e it's easier to look at black and white and explain what's going on in the shapes and structures of things it is and then you can also describe texture uh emotionally um with with more accuracy whereas with color it, it i mean the tools that we have at our disposal now are just absolutely fantastic and uh you know in in many ways i, I sort of feel that the post-production um domain is is become sophisticated but have we as photographers really learned and I think we're still struggling to catch up almost with the facilities uh, at our disposal and to understand how to translate uh, texture, colour and tone, especially and light uh, in ways that are completely consistent with our intention. And even then, we don't always know exactly. We don't know what, what they're doing. Sometimes we, we have to print them to find out and sometimes in the end I have to live with them for a year or so. So. Um, and in a way, that's part of the wonder of color photography. I think it's quite mysterious. It's quite difficult to un unravel it. Um, but it, you're absolutely right. It's true that we don't talk about it very much. And the only example I can recall in a book form of where it's been talked about really interestingly is um, uh, Why Photographs Work by George Barr. David, I think you might be in that book. Um, and it, yeah, it's a, it's beautifully done. I mean, it's very personal the way he describes. He literally just takes each picture. He, he takes sort of sixty or seventy examples of, of photographers who he likes and admires, and um, and then goes through a process of analysis. But the analysis is very, uh, it's it's very instinctive, uh, and it's based on a, a, at least in part an emotional reaction rather than an educated or intellectual one. Uh, so we get a wonderful kind of range of of a sense of how a picture can influence a person. Uh, and a lot of that is based on, on colour and texture and lights rather than on um, a kind of just an analysis of the lines, let's say, or, or the proportions. Um, uh, well, actually, how, how did you go about? I mean, you started in black and white, Joe. And how, how did you go about learning your craft uh, when you left? art college in terms of photography and composition well the truth is that the the first three or four years a lot of what i was doing was still black and white and it, and it and it was mainly portraits it was i think that was the only way i could make a living at the time and you know i just got a couple of breaks eventually with the with the, the whole kind of travel um field field travel books uh which you know which david did at the same time too and um Gosh, I just taught myself as I went along, and and I don't think for a, a second I was having a uh, an, a really academic or uh, studied approach to it. It was 
go out and, and shoot pictures and you obviously just shot what felt right uh, the uh, the big 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 difference though between then and now is the fact we're using a, a completely different kind of medium so we we then had to shoot color transparency it was what was expected and required by uh, the uh, by our publishers by our clients and um, as we know color transparency is a strong color signature which you kind of choose beforehand and you're pretty much stuck with it once you once you've chosen it um when in the early 80s for most of us that was kodak film there were a few different kodak films and and, and they weren't that great to be honest and then fuji films started to really ramp up their excellence uh through the 80s and into the 90s and uh and and I think films like Astia, Provia, and Velvia became the, the choice of, of most professionals that I knew. Um, yeah, Astia was a sort of soft film, beautiful for portraits and, and social photography. They, they said, yeah, that's right. And, and where Provia was a good sort of all-rounder in the middle and Velvia was kind of landscape photographer's choice for a lot of things because it had very rich colors and high contrast and was notoriously very very difficult to control because excuse me while well, i just removed this dog from my lap <laughs> <laughs> thank you coco um, and uh okay, i just got um bond there um and uh, yes yeah, so it's it, it was a film that that gave presence to the landscape i i i think looking back and it's a beautiful film and, and all sorts of merits but it, it, it came with this very, very strong kind of processed look to it. And uh, still, as you said in a recent article, Tim, still difficult to emulate uh, digitally. However, I, I do think, you know, when you, you go out with your camera now, the mindset is quite different because rather than relying on a, uh, a film's signature and, and getting to understand it as far as you possibly can, you know, David, you've used that characteristic signature of Velvia brilliantly over the years um, but you you now have a lot more flexibility and and I I embrace and love that I, I think you know you can create a color character you want with a good digital file um, and I'm trying to remember now what the original point was but that's at least describing the uh, the difference and how how would I learn that I think I would learn it differently now uh, because back then uh, I was, I was, I assumed that that was how it was done. And I think that the kind of refinement, sense of refinement that we have in colour now simply wasn't there at the time. So, you know, for me, it was make that picture as accurate and as, as beautiful as you could. Uh, and obviously that meant sacrificing, sometimes sacrificing a little bit of shadow detail. Um, and you use the, the darks, as I now realize, denoted a lot of mood uh, and emotion. And the, the lights as highlights were very important. If you if you lost highlight detail, then the photograph was usually lost, full stop. So, you know, the, the technique was all built around trying to retain highlight detail. Uh, and that was very restrictive. And so I think, frankly, tech, technical considerations often overrode my ability to interpret color at the time whereas now yeah. I, I would i would think that we have a lot more freedom would you would you go through a cycle of iterations with your photography then of analyzing what you'd produced 
and going out and re and refining the ideas that you were working on, or were you just working instinctively most of that most of the time? Well, I think a big difference, and I don't want to go on too long, because I'm sure Dave will have some insights. But um, very briefly, it is that it is partly down to the uh, the economic circumstances, because in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, I was mainly a working photographer, doing very little education, producing pictures. Uh, that were used in publications, um, in uh, well through stock uh, for books, for calendars, for cards. There normally was a fairly commercial element to it, and so as a working photographer, I had to produce pictures that were, were kind of bright and strong, simple to uh, to understand, and honestly, frankly, not very sophisticated. Um, I wasn't that successful because I did have a penchant for mood and and that meant that I tend to eschew blue skies so I was never a successful uh, travel photographer in in the industry I just couldn't I just couldn't shoot the pictures that they wanted um, so I ended up in this kind of smaller niche I suppose doing uh, d doing well doing my own calendars and, um, and and doing pictures for books um, but honestly I think Going into education and and actually ultimately uh, digital photography has liberated me to return to trying to be an artist, if I can use that phrase, and, and focus much more on what am I trying to say. It's not that I didn't care about those things beforehand. It's just that the framework was different and I had to I had to play the game more, if that makes sense. Yeah. And David, how did you? Um, learn the structure of photography what process did you go through to get um well i went to uh college to do to study photography uh, joe i know did a fine art uh, degree as he said but i did a i did a photography course and it was very much um documentary based um uh, rather than uh rather than landscape i didn't really start shooting landscape until i left college so and shooting in black and white not color uh, but I think that helped actually shooting in black and white was a was a very good thing because it was it simplified the whole process. One thing though I suppose that I would say is that it was more about relationships between people than it was between forms with a any picture that you've got people in you can make it work on the sense of a social level um as well as on the sense of a compositional level because we read uh gesture and facial expressions in a in a universal way um but I, I, I didn't study any of those rule things. I didn't believe in any of the rule things. None of it was talked about at college. I was very surprised when, uh, when I left college Loosely and went connected. into a wider world. In fact, when I started teaching, how important um, the rules were seen as being. So it was intuitive. It was really intuitive. Do, do you think that anybody, I mean, you, you've taught and helped so many people with, photography and composition do you think anybody is capable of learning or do you think that you have to have a certain innate um eye for for a balance and line was it edison who said um that uh, uh, it's 99 percent perspiration and one percent one percent inspiration i think uh, i think it's possible for anybody to do it i think we have to give ourselves permission i think that's lacking sometimes that people uh, tell themselves that they're incapable they tell themselves that other people have some innate 
talent that they they don't possess and and therefore it's sort of um, they're, they're never going to be as good as uh, I I don't believe that at all it doesn't chime with how I feel um, that my photographic uh, journey has taken place I, I I feel that I've I've worked very hard at it I've spent a lot of time studying things um, and uh, and that's how I've learned about composition I've looked at pictures that I I love and tried to work out how they work we there was no formal training uh, about that for either Joe or I um, I, I don't think um, it just I think it is possible for anybody to do well, um, yeah, I, I think that, I think that's right. Um, it, it isn't. It's something, it's sort of universal, it should be universally human. And, and actually, sorry if I'm sounding a little bit, um, uh, <laughs> we, we should say here. that Joe, Joe's, Joe's receiving a lot of love from the dog. Uh, the yeah, I'm, okay. I'm still, I'm still concentrating tonight. I beg your pardon. That's um, all right. Yeah, I think that my, my mother is a voice teacher and she, um, she always says that anybody can sing. Uh, so the same kind of principle. Uh, some people say they're tone deaf. So, you know, and I, I, maybe there are a few people who are who are a little bit tone deaf in terms of, of seeing. But I, th I think the difficulty with photography for most adults is the it's partly the fact that they're adults. And and second, because I think it wasn't it Picasso said something about, you know, every child is an artist, but not many, you know, not many can be artists as, as grown ups because they can't retain that childlike sense of wonder and imagination. Um, yeah. So many people who certainly if we, we look at the workshop scenario, we have so many wonderful people come on workshops and they're brilliant at what they do. Absolutely brilliant at, in their own work situation. But many of those work situations are, let's say, in medicine or engineering or uh, law or e economics, where there will be a kind of. Uh, there is a, a very strong goal outcome culture. Mm. And also there's often a massive health and safety kind of consideration as well. And sometimes for many of them, it's a matter of life and death. You know, think of structural engineers and, uh, and medics and so on. So they, they have a very different discipline to artists. You know, part of what being an artist means is, is actually allowing your imagination uh, to, to run free and and be be like a child and so i think once once people get back into that way of thinking and it can take years uh then they they can definitely achieve almost anything um but they, as david says they had to give themselves permission to do it and and there is one other slight obstacle in photography and that is all the gear because the, yes. gear, the gear tends to, you know, it's all wonderful and great fun and we all love using it and all that. But it does get in the way a lot of the time. Because ultimately, it is about the pictures, not, not the equipment. Yeah. A, final, a final recommendation, if you, if you don't mind. Um, if, you, if you're going to suggest a book for somebody to look at to study form and composition, um, what would you recommend, Joe? Well, off the top of my head, because you sprung that one on us. Um, I, I know. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, I, you know, I should probably say David's, obviously. Um, nah, uh, without not not David or Joe's, obviously. <laughs> no, I. <laughs> We've I, had that episode. Yeah, I <laughs> I've got very few. I've got very few academic photography books, and most of mine are just 
the photographers whose work I love. And well, that's I, what I was thinking more than anything. Yeah, I I love Peter Dombrowskis, as you know, Tim. I've got I've got at least mm. five or six of his books, and I, I think those pictures hold have stood the test of time extremely well. There's many many, you know, in a funny kind of way, Peter's photography is very coherent. Uh, and yet every single picture is is unique. It, it, it reflects the his encounter on that occasion with his camera and the structure of his compositions to me always looks right. It's just something about them. Yeah. Um, you, know, you could say it's balance, but it, 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 it's it's energy. It's all of those things. And because they're so beautiful to look at, I think there's a lesson in each one of them. So, yes, I, I, I'd certainly think that one of those books would be great. Thanks, Jim. And David? Um, well, for a, just kind of looking at a nice yep. book of wonderful photographs, I think I would probably recommend that uh, book by um, Paul Wakefield uh, that Eddie Ephraims did a sort of retrospective of his career. I think some amazing images in there are beautifully composed, um, somewhat strange compositions sometimes, but really wonderful. Uh, and then for something more academic, uh, I think I would go for uh, The Photographer's Eye by John Sarkovsky, uh, which is uh, just a brilliant analysis of how photographs work, um, how they yep. convey meaning. And uh, then also another good one would be um, uh, The Nature of Photographs by Stephen Shaw. Both both excellent books. Yeah. And I'll, I'll recommend the Paul Wakefield book as a as a good study in, in uh, relaxed but formal composition and photography. I think one of so. one of those things that, uh, particularly if you think of uh, Paul's work, that's worth mentioning is the elements of the unpredictable. Uh, you know, although they're very beautiful photographs, they, they do often defy, certainly they defy the rules. Uh, and, and they have this sort of edginess to them, which I, I also, you know, as David was saying, leaves room, there's something like them, leaves room to, you know, for the viewer to interpret. So bits of some degree of ambiguity is is actually really helpful spatially. And one of the, the things that we get asked quite often um, is, oh, do you shoot pictures with figures in to give scale, quote unquote? Well, that's actually one of the reasons I don't shoot pictures with figures in quite often, because I don't want to give scale. I mean, not that I wouldn't shoot pictures with figures in, because there are times when that's a, a good thing to do, but it, it would be from a storytelling point of view rather than to give scale. I actually think that ambiguities of scale uh, are part of the joy of landscape photography. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David and Joe. Um, Thanks, speak Jen. to you next week. Look forward to it.